0: Welcome to the Chapel Online. At the Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning and happy fourth to you. I'm glad that you're here. We're glad to be here, Kevin. Great! It's good. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Excitement on the front row. Really, thanks for sharing the the weekend with us. We're in Ruth chapter two. If you have a Bible, (coughs) excuse me, or device, please turn there. Something you can write on, take a note on, because God's word is gonna say something. We pray every week that it says something to you, and what God's word says to you is more important than what I might say about it. And being able to take a note on that is really important. So the book of Ruth is a real small book in the Old Testament, and it covers the life and times of one family, one family, and what we see is through their uh, struggles and obedience, God's great blessing and grace in their life it unfolds. Now, um, most people think of um, think of the New Testament as the place you go for grace, but well, we're going to look at it grace in the Old Testament. Uh, grace is God's unearned, unmerited favor. It comes to us, not because of something we have done. It culminates in the New Testament in the salvation that's available to all humanity through Jesus Christ. And so I see where it will culminate, but we're gonna look at it from here, find its expression. And what we'll discover is what we've sung about in the past that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And he is a God of grace. And he has extended it. You will see it here. It pervades so much of our life, God's grace. And we often just miss it. We miss it because we're busy. We don't look at it. We think too highly of ourselves. So today I'm praying that you might see God's grace in your life as Ruth began to see it played out in her life. And I would like to pray for me and for you as we we come together that we might hear from the Lord. So would you pray with me? Gracious God, we pause and we ask you to meet us here. We declare to you that we need your grace. Without your favor, we are helpless and we're hopeless. So today we humble our hearts. And from that position, we ask for more grace. Master, would you open our eyes to your grace around us? that we might praise you. Lord Jesus, would you enable us to be dispensers of your grace to those around us, that they might praise you. Lord, may we be fully transformed as we receive the fullness of your grace in our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll see today God's great provision in the life of Ruth. We will see, even in his Old Testament precepts, his teaching, his commands in His old in the Old Testament, the heart of a gracious God. And we'll see the people of God and how they extend and dispense grace in Ruth's life. The unfolding story of Ruth, we see him mixing his story with her story as he does with us when we follow him. And so just real simple, we've kind of divided it into some uh, little categories here for your outline. The first one is this, Boaz, God's provisional grace. This man, this person uh, becomes God's provisional grace in the life of Ruth. And chapter one ends kind of with just the slightest bit of hope It begins with a famine and uh, Naomi and her husband and her boys leave Israel. They go to Moab, fleeing certain death, only to find that her husband and her boys die. And she's she's come back after that with one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth. And as they come into the city, it says the barley harvest was taking place. So there's just the slightest little bit of hope that, The Lord had visited there and the famine was over, but we don't have any insight into what's happening with her or her family until chapter two, verse one. And it says this. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of uh, Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The storyteller of Ruth is a great storyteller, just kind of bringing us along. And the first thing we notice is that... um, this tension is beginning to rise. There's hope here. So chapter one, if we were watching it on a TV series, there would have been a commercial break at the end of chapter one. So we come back from the commercial and we're introduced to Boaz. And it says he's a relative. And, and our hope kind of, we kind of go, oh, oh, they, there's somebody, there's somebody. That, that term used for him, which will be explained even more later in chapter three, is a technical term, a covenant brother. Um, A kinsman redeemer is what he technically is. I've got a definition here on the screen of a kinsman redeemer. A relative who restores or preserves the full community rights of disadvantaged family members. The concept arises from God's covenant with Israel and it points to the redemption of humanity in Jesus Christ, important person. So if you were to read in the Old Testament in Leviticus or Deuteronomy about this kinsman redeemer, what you were going to find is that if a family member had to sell their their land in order to pay the bills, they had to mortgage something off in order to pay, uh, maybe for a bad decision, maybe you know something in need, maybe it was medical bills. Who knows? The, the the this covenant brother would come in and buy that land back and give it back to the family. That's a tall order. If your debt situation became so uh, you know so upside down, they didn't you couldn't file for bankruptcy. You had to sell yourself into into indentured servitude, and if that were to happen, the kinsman redeemer would come along and redeem you, pay the redemption price, pay to free you. So a pretty important uh, person in the life and times of the Israelites. If there was a, a brother, as we saw last week, who who uh, has a widow and that, and they never had a son, a brother that brother would to be marry the, the the widow so that the line would carry on. If there was a legal problem and you needed a trustee, you would call on this kinsman redeemer. Really important person. And so as soon as we see there's a near relative, there's a covenant brother, there's a kinman redeemer. Our hope, you know, kind of starts to increase. Things aren't that bad. I see the women coming into Bethlehem, the house of bread, with the barley harvest all around them. I see them coming into town in chapter one as the sun is setting. They've been walking all day from Moab. Now the sun is rising over the harvest fields and there's a relative. And not only is he a relative, I've got a lot of relatives, they're pretty awesome, but not all of them could help me if I was in trouble. And he, it says, is a man of standing. Now, this phrase, it's a unique little phrase, when it's it's used in a military setting in different parts of the Bible, they call him a mighty warrior. When it's used in in a moral context, it's, it, it, they would describe him as a man of great virtue. When it's used in a, in a financial context, he's going to be a wealthy guy. So in other words, not only is there a relative, but there's a relative that can do something. He is a man of standing. He's got social connections. He's got financial wealth. He has moral character, and he's a fighter. He's a warrior. That's who this person is. He's from Elimelech's clan doesn't mean he's his brother, but he's related. And when you meet somebody that has the ability and the desire to do uh, what God wants done, that's God's provisional grace in your life. And that's who Boaz is to Ruth. Not only does he have the desire, he has the means. He's going to do something for her. We say of Ruth in your outline, Ruth is... God's invisible hand of grace. She's going to experience God's invisible hand of grace as the story in chapter 2 unfolds. Here's what it says in verses 2 and 3. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, "Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind everyone and who in, excuse me, behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor." And Naomi said to her, "Yeah, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, she entered her field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, in case we forgot. (laughs) So now there's even more hope. She took the initiative. She went out and she said, you know, we came into town. The harvest is going on. I'm just going to go behind the workers. The men would cut it, leave it on the ground. The women would come and bind it together and make sheaths and stand them up. But you don't get it all. Now, you got to remember, this is right after a famine, so I would think they would be pretty thorough in their harvesting. But I don't think Ruth knew that God's precepts, not only his provision, but his precepts of the Old Testament made room for this. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. God, speaking to the Israelites, says this, And when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your fields or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. God had already made a way for her. It was already happening for her. She goes out and I love this. It turned out that she's in the field of Boaz. In Hebrew, which is where the story is written, it says, chance upon chance, In other words, the storyteller's tongue is firmly in his cheek, and he's saying, you'll never believe where she is. She's in Boaz's field, and our hope continues to rise as we see God's grace. God led her to take the initiative to go out. God led her to go to Boaz's field, where she will be provided for. I don't know what you were doing Monday night, but I got together with a few friends to watch LSU beat Florida in the Baseball National championship." Matter of fact, I'm so excited about it. I brought a picture, not of me celebrating, but of them. And after this victory, Coach Jay Johnson, who was, you know, how they put you on the spot right there while the game's going on. Hey, you're losing horribly. How do you feel about that? I just don't understand why they do that. You've won the game. And this is what he said. He used three phrases. I don't know if I'm going to get them in the right order, but he said right place, right time, right people, or right place, right people, right time. That's what he said. And and when I heard that, I thought, I think what he's saying is there's more going on here than even he could orchestrate. Even though he recruited the people, he had planned for the time, there's still going, there's so much going on. Now, I'm not comparing their victory as some divine intervention. What I'm trying to say is, when the circumstances of your life come together in a way that brings God glory, and it's for your good, and there's too many pieces to figure out how it happened, it's God's grace in your life. And you shouldn't miss it. And this is what's happening to Ruth. She's experiencing God's grace through Boaz and God's provision and providence in her life. So Boaz comes up to her. um, Well, he's going to come into the scene in verse four. We learn something important about him. Verse four, just when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered It's a small interchange, but the impression I get is that he's a good guy. He's a gracious man all the way around. His workers like him, and he loves them. Verse 5, Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she is a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among your sheaves behind your harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. He's a good boss. He knows his workers. But he does say something that's a little strange. Who does she belong to? Sounds so possessive. It would be very strange in that day for a woman just to be out and about, unconnected either to her family and therefore her father or to her husband. And here's a young woman, and she stands out. She's not one of his usual workers. He sees it right away. Hey, who's that? I don't know what caused her to stand out. Was it because she was a foreigner? Did she have an accent? Did she look different? Did she have a different tone to her skin? Was her clothes different? I don't know what it was, but he picked it up right away. Or was she just really good looking? Who's that? I know everybody, and I don't know her, and I haven't seen her. I don't think you can rule it out, but I don't know. So the, you know, the boss, the, the man on the field there, he, he identifies her. He starts out with her nationality. She's a foreigner. She's a Moabite. She's come here with her mother-in-law. And I just think that's interesting. She came early. She wanted to work the field, she's been here all day, she just had a little rest there under the shade tent. She's impressive, in other words. So Boaz goes to Ruth and asks her. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Do not go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow after, I mean, follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Hence, you might be good looking. And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. I feel like he's just a generous guy all the way around. He addresses her tenderly, my daughter, which also indicates that he's older than her. I don't know by how much. But there's a, there's a, there's a gentleness and a humbleness that I think he already receives. You remember James says, God um, gives more grace to the humble. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And she's getting more grace with every turn. It's being extended to her and extended to her and, her, and his statement to her is so, it's so full of grace. It's urgent. Listen to me, he says. It's accommodating. No, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want you to leave another. Work here. Just work in our field. It's inclusive. You can be a part of our workforce. I want you on our team. You come work with us. It's protective. Hey, listen, I've told people to leave you be. No one's gonna hassle you. Oh, isn't that calming? It's tender. And if you get thirsty, look, there's plenty of water right over here. Just help yourself, help yourself. The grace of God is pouring out of this man onto this foreigner. Is is he just trying to impress her because she's cute? Now I've done some stupid things and I know some of the men in the room that I've known for a while have done some stupid things just to get a girl's attention. Is that what's going on here? Maybe. But I think it's much more. What we don't know and won't learn about Boaz from this book is about his family. We we don't know right now that he's eligible, but he is. We're going to learn that. Not only is he a relative, he's a bachelor. But what we don't know is that his mother is Rahab. Now you may not know Rahab. Rahab, like Ruth, was a foreigner that was included in the the Israelite community by the grace of God. She's recorded in Joshua. That's when Joshua takes the the, the children of the promised land to capture and kick out the Canaanites. She's a Canaanite, she lives in Jericho, and she helped the Israelites. But she's also a prostitute. She's a prostitute. And she hid the spies, the Israelite spies, and when people came to find them, she misdirected them. And because of her actions, and because of the grace of God, the Israeli soldiers saved her and her entire family and brought them into the community of the Israelites. This is the home Boaz grew up in. I don't know how she talked about it. She might say, well, Boaz, you're an Israelite, because your dad is, but I'm a Canaanite. And God has been so, so gracious to me. See, he's, he's received his grace, his family's received grace, and he is a dispenser of grace. That's just how it goes. And Ruth is overwhelmed by grace. That's what grace should do to all of us. It should always amaze us. And the moment grace ceases to be amazing, it has ceased to be grace. That moment, you have changed the definition of grace. So Ruth's amazement at God's grace through Boaz, verse 10. At this she bowed with her face to the ground, She asked him, Why have you found such favor? Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Wow, isn't that the question that grace should cause all of us to ask? When the grace of God pours over us, shouldn't it be, Gosh, why have you noticed me, an outsider, a foreigner? Grace is always offered to outsiders. It's offered to outsiders and insiders alike. There's no difference. None. Why? She has bowed to, she's knelt down, she's put her, her head on the dirt. I believe she's speaking with her face to the ground. So it's muffled. Why have you even noticed me? A foreigner. Man. I'll tell you what drives her to her needs. The realization of her helpless condition as compared to the grace that Boaz has extended to her. She sees herself in light of him. And this is where too many folks in the Western world and particularly in the Western church, we miss it. We become so enamored with ourselves. Our egos are so large that when we look in every picture, we are the center of it. We are a demanding bunch that expect and deserve and pay for and so on and so on. And we miss that we're sinners and that he is holy. And we miss that we're creatures and his creator. We miss it all. Years ago, C.S. Lewis, the writer and thinker, was asked about sharing the gospel on the university campus where he worked. And he said, you know, I don't share it so much on the university campus as I have with airmen from the Royal Air Force. And he said, uh, he wrote about it. And so I've got it here behind me. And this is what he said. The greatest barrier I have met in sharing Christ with young men is the almost total absence from their minds, from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. The ancient man approached God, he would say, as an accused person approached his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. The modern man is judge and God is in the dock. The modern man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen to it. And the trial may even end with God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And from that position, we never, ever, ever experience the grace of God. Because we've put him beneath us. It's usually only only in utter desperation when the test results are positive and indeed I do have cancer, when the deal didn't go through and indeed I have to file for bankruptcy, when i am filed papers and indeed my spouse has left me, when there's death or tragedy, then we find ourselves on our knees looking up. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way at all. Because there at that moment, Ruth is on her knees with her face in the dirt and dust. She did not receive shame. She did not receive uh, punishment. She did not receive guilt. She was not intimidated. She was not manipulated. What she received was loving kindness. And when we come to God on our knees with our head in the dust, He extends grace to us, not shame, but loving kindness, not contempt, but loving kindness. It's powerful. So Boaz replies to her question, verses 11 and 12. Hey, I've been told about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of her husband and how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, who under whose wing you have come to take refuge. The word is out. He already knows about Ruth. Oh yeah, I've heard about you. You left your homeland. You left your people. You might remember Ruth said to Naomi, hey, quit pushing me. Where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I'll die. But she also said, your God will be my God. This is what's motivating Ruth all along the way. This is what's what's pushing her. And Boaz understands it. You're not just a good person. You're a person who has left your home, your family, all that you know, and you have come under the protective wing of the God of Israel. You have sought salvation in him. She didn't know Boaz existed and that's the story that is known she is a woman of faith it's trusting in the god of israel boaz's mother rahab was the same kind of woman when she met the spies in joshua 2 this is what she said to them i know that the lord has given i know this i know that the lord has given you this land And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, the Canaanites, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you, the Israelites. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Dead Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. We heard it. And what you did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed, not only is God with you, but your mighty mighty warriors. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God. In heaven above and on earth below. That's a declaration, not of what she's heard, but what she now believes. And that's why they could trust her, even though her business was shady. Because she said, oh yeah, we know all about you and I'll help you, because God is with you. That's what Boaz was raised under, a foreign woman who trusted God. He was able to notice one in front of him. Ruth says, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord? Verse 13. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Grace does that. It puts us on equal standing. You need God's grace. I need God's grace. For we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. One is not better than the next. The ground at the cross is level. And she's been put at ease. You've been so kind to me. You didn't scare me. You didn't abuse me. You didn't take advantage of me. You've been kind to me. That's what grace does. At mealtime, end of the day, Boaz said to her, hey, come over here, have some bread and dip it in wine vinegar. When I read that, I don't think he's singling out the pretty girl in the room and going, hey, you come over here and do something that not everybody else is doing. I think she segregated herself as the foreigner on the edge of the room. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is for you too. Come over here. Have some bread. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. That's what grace does. Grace doesn't just let you in the room. He puts you at the the table. Not the kids' table. The place of honor. It doesn't just feed you a little. It feeds you all you can have and more. That's why Jesus said, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over and it'll pour out into your lap. For the measure you use, it'll be used against you. Boaz is a man that's been transformed by grace. His whole family has been transformed by grace. How can he not transform another with the same grace that he has received? Verse 15, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. That's what grace does. It protects, it protects. And so in this little story, we see see grace and it's moving in two directions. And I wanna talk about those, those two directions. Boaz is dispensing it, and Ruth is receiving it. So dispensing God's grace. Here's here's the way I often like to say it. Grace is unmerited favor. If judgment is getting what we deserve, and mercy is not getting what we deserve, then grace is getting what we don't deserve. There was nothing in Ruth's little life. I mean, she had been kind to her mother-in-law, but she's a a foreigner. she, She has nothing to bring. She has nothing to offer. And God meets her and directs her, if you will, and provides grace for her through the people of God, through the precepts of God, through his, through his providence. In small ways and large ways, God's grace is all around us, whether it's in just helping us get through the day or offering us salvation. J.I. Packer said it this way, grace is God's love demonstrated toward those who deserve the opposite. God's grace is his gift-giving life. The gift is himself. So here's my question to you. Why must those who have been graced by God, and many of us have received God's grace, why must we show grace to others? I'll answer that question with a couple more questions. Can you be transformed by God's grace and not be gracious? Can you be forgiven by God and not be someone who forgives? If we don't extend the grace of God to the world around us, how will the world ever know the gracious God who has transformed our life? How will they ever know if we as followers of Jesus are not gracious people? If we hate those people who hate us, then we're no different than anybody else and if we only love the people that look like us that vote like us that act like us that think like us how are we any any different than any of those however when we love those who hate us who are different from us and extend grace as it was extended to us people will notice people will notice Grace is a wrecking ball. It destroys the barriers that separate us from God. I don't know if you've ever handled a wrecking ball, but it's not a very precise instrument. And grace will wreck not only the divisions that keep us out of a relationship with God, but he will wreck our life. Let me tell you what I mean. It will begin to change the way you view others. It'll challenge the prejudices that lie in all of our hearts. It'll push against the way we size up and understand societies and peoples. There won't be outsiders and insiders because grace levels that field. And so for the prostitutes and the liars, for the drug addicted and for the sexually impure, that find church the last place that they would ever want to go to find help. They were indeed the people that were attracted to Jesus. And you have to ask, do you not? I have to. What did he extend that made him so lovely? What did he offer that made him so welcoming? Please don't miss that he was holy and perfect, that he was God in a body. Please don't miss that. He was a grace dispenser. And what would the world be if the church of Jesus Christ became a great grace dispenser, known for its love and its grace, rather than for its ability to shame and condemn. In the second century AD, a man named Matthias, Matheatus, wrote his pagan friend, his non-Christian friend, Dionysus, to tell him about Christianity and Christians in the Roman Empire. He says this They marry, as do all others. They have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet In their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay insult with honor. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice, as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, and they are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet Those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. What does your life look like to be a grace dispenser? Philip Yancey wrote a book called Vanishing Grace, where he bemoaned the fact that there's less grace available, seemingly not from God, but through us. And he says this, consider, for example, the excellent question, why doesn't God do something about global hunger? And he goes on to add the angels' words after Jesus' ascension echo through the centuries. And this is what they said. Why do you stand there looking into the sky? We, Jesus' followers, he continues, are agents assigned to carry out God's will on earth. Too easily, we expect God to do something for us when instead God wants to do it through us. And what does he want to do? He wants us to extend grace, to be forgiving, to be loving to walk the extra mile, to love each other, dispensing grace as freely and lavishly as it was dispensed on you. Let me, just, let me say that again. We need to, to uh, dispense grace as freely and lavishly as it was dispensed on us. What would that mean for your life? Wow. Well, you can't give what you don't have. So let's look at the other direction. Receiving <laughs> grace. We have to be recipients of it. If you've become a recipient of God's grace, maybe like Ruth, you've asked God, why have you taken any notice of me, a foreigner? It's a great question. The way we expect God to answer that question will tell us all we need to know about grace and our understanding of it. If you think God's going to say, well, because you've really done really well and you're a good person, then you don't understand grace. If you think God is going to say, well, because you're, you've really been faithful in church and religious activities, then you don't understand God's grace. If you think he's going to say, because I need you to serve me, then you really don't understand grace. Grace is his unmerited, unearn, unearnable favor on our lives. We need to approach God the same way Ruth approached Boaz, humbly, on her knees, in complete humility, realizing, hey, there's nothing I can do. Grace is not humiliating, grace is humbling. Don't confuse the two. But it is the hurdle, is it not, that we all face? When I really understand myself and I get honest with myself and my shortcomings and the wickedness that can live and reside in me, the hatred, the bitterness that we talked about last week. And I come to a God who's holy and other and he wants to extend grace to me. hmm. We have to trust in his provision. That's what Ruth did. That's what Rahab did. That's what God wants us to do in trusting in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by work so that no one can boast. It's God's gift. How do you receive it the same way you do a gift with your hands open, your heart open, with gratitude in your heart? You take it. You take it. Our grandsons have recently moved to Colorado Springs and earlier in the late spring, I had a chance to go see them. And in their backyard is um, a hammock. It's the grand boy's hammock. The grandson's hammock. And they said to me, Poppy, why don't you get in the hammock? And I was like, whew. I had a couple of thoughts run through my mind. They went something like this. First, who put up the hammock? Because I have a son, their dad, who's a musician. He's got about as much mechanical skill as a rock. He doesn't have any. Fortunately, he married a woman that could be an engineer. So I said, who put up the hammock? And they didn't really know. And so I looked at it and I thought about, do I believe it? Can I trust it? Biblical faith has three parts to it. Knowledge. To believe in Jesus, you have to know about him. That's why we're trying to send people to places in this world where no one speaks the name of Jesus and no one they know speaks the name of Jesus. You gotta know about him. Then you have to acknowledge and be able to acknowledge that who he said he was and what he said he did. A lot of people will do that. Oh, I know, I, I know about Jesus. And I can even accept that, you know, this is what he said. But biblical knowledge also includes trust. So back to the hammock. So they said, hey, do you want to get in the hammock? And it's one of those little bitty hammocks that kind of fits in your back pocket. It's ridiculously small. And the material looks ridiculously thin. And the ropes they used to tie to the trees look ridiculously inadequate. And I said, I, I don't think, I don't think Poppy's going to get in the hammock. Oh, come on, come on. Then their dad got in the hammock. And I went, hmm, okay. Then they got in with their dad. So I know that the hammock's there. I've seen it. I realize it's there. I acknowledge that it holds people. It's holding my son and my grandsons. It's holding a lot of people I love. They got out and said, you're going to get in? Poppy, have I trusted the hammock yet? The answer is no, I have not. It's not until I do the hoagie pokey and I put my whole self in that have trusted the hammock. And so I eased into it and I stretched around it and I got in and it sank down and the tight, and, and there I am. And I thought, is it going to hold? And then both boys jumped on top of me <laughs> and it held. Let me assure you whatever baggage, whatever's weighing you down, the grace of God can handle it. So if you've never received God's grace by trusting in God's son, today is the day to do that. It's not by just knowing about Jesus. Lots of people know about Jesus. It's not just about acknowledging who he said he was and what he said he did. The devil does that. It's about trusting him and putting your whole self in and how do you do that? You do it by faith. You do it the same way Ruth did it, the same way Rahab did it, the same way Boaz did it. I'm going to trust God. And you let him know you're trusting him through prayer. It's trust. It's our faith that saves us. You're saved by grace through faith. And exercise that faith and we say, I'm going to trust in you. All I know about me, I'm going to entrust all I know about you. That's what it means to become a Christian. Some of you may be in church all your life, but you've never trusted in Christ. Some of you, this is your first time in church. Either person's welcome. We're about to celebrate communion. Communion is is an act of worship for Christians. So if you've not made that Wonderful discovery. If you've not made that decision, if you've not placed your trust in Christ, do that now and then celebrate with us. We have an open table. It doesn't matter where you are, where you've come from, what part of the world you exist in. But if you're a Christian, you're welcome here. So I want to close us in prayer. I want to lead anyone in the room in a simple prayer to trust Christ today. Today could be the day that everything changes for you. And the grace of God washes over you comes into your life like a wrecking ball, destroying all the divisions that exist between you and God. But don't be surprised when it begins to change more than you thought it would, for His glory and your good. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come to you and we pray in Jesus' name that we'd be great dispensers of grace. Lord, I pray for those here today If you need to trust in Christ, don't put it off another day right where you're seated. Acknowledge your faith and trust through a simple prayer. You can just say this prayer to God from your heart of hearts. Just say, Lord, today, I trust you. I trust that you died on the cross for me, in my place, for my sin, for my wrongs. And I believe that you rose from the dead victoriously. To give me life. So I receive your salvation and I thank you that you will forgive me. That you'll transform me. That you will include me into your forever family. And it's with great gratitude that I say this to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.